0: Thank you guys for coming in this morning on this kind of end of the year, uh, rainy, semi-cold, getting colder. Um, it's great, and, and Chris, thank you for the introduction. We, uh, my wife and I have been together with the, the Kips along with some other, some members to be part of this core team, to, to plant this church in Richmond, to see God's work manifest and, and grow here in, in this city, and it's been wonderful. And um, more recently, like, like Chris was saying, we have been preparing for uh, long-term mission service in, in Japan, so that's just a little bit about us. I'm usually here serving uh, either in, in the back with the soundboard or either up here behind some guitarist or something, so it's a little weird to be kind of center stage. So um, it's great, Chris has given me the, the opportunity to kind of do the last sermon of the year, of, of the decade, I guess we could say. Um, <laughs> So uh, this is uh, important, I guess, right? So um, we, we, we went through this whole uh, Advent season. I hope you guys had a great Christmas. And we got the focus on uh, Jesus becoming flesh and what that meant and who he was and who he is and what, that look, what we get to look forward to in that. And um, So I think it's just important to, maybe as we go into the new year, to, to keep that focus of, of what he was here to do and uh, what he has called us to. Out of that. And, and the other day I was actually listening to a pastor that uh, had this really cool quote about the importance of Advent. Uh, I just thought I'd share it. I thought it was kind of cool. He said, Advent is when we can imagine, reflect on a promise of things that we cannot see in order to ignite a passion for faith in things to come. Uh, I just thought that was really, really apt because Jesus' birth, um, we can look in retrospect and see the cross at the end of that and exactly what that whole life and ministry and story means for us and how we can sit in that redemption that he has offered us, that he's given to us. Um, so yeah, we've been through this Adore series. If you guys have been with us this past Christmas and thank you guys, if you're new to us, um, we, we would love you to come back. We'd love you to continue coming back to Renaissance and just see God's work here um, in Richmond, Texas. I guess with all of that, can... It, like to do a quick prayer, we could dive right into scripture. Um, it'll be a big, big chunk, so um, prayer is needed. <laughs> um, Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you so much for this day. We thank you so much for all the individual souls in this room, um, drawing us together, bringing us near to you. Uh, would you work in this room today? Lord, would you just uh, spirit move, and, and the people that need to hear this message, and um, Lord, let it, your, let it be your work and your words that, that affect us and move us so. Lord, we thank you so much that we can even sit in, in the glory of everything that you've revealed. Uh, open our hearts and minds today to what you have for us, in Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, I guess just to, just to start as a, an opening question, I know that's a little bit rhetorical, but um, have you guys ever, if you've been in a relationship with someone, friend, family, um, where someone's gotten hurt, someone's gotten uh, sort of upset and, and um, some sort of wronged, I guess. And, and if you're part of that wrongdoing, um, I know I, I personally have, have contributed to a lot of hurt and in, in some relationships, and um, I can't I can't really remember all the all the different ones, and, and it it tears me up when I think about it. But it's after incidents like this that. Um, you know, we kind of feel this conviction rise up that that we now owe this other person something. We we owe the person that we wronged something, and there's this sort of imbalance in the relationship that, um, you know, you can almost feel a responsibility for, like it's it's your duty to to work to make it right. Um, and there's you know, there's been times in my life where I've come to realize that that I was in the wrong, but you know, for whatever reason, sort of pride comes into play or. Um, I, can, I, I just feel like I can do something nice for this person. And then surely they'll forget over time or you know things will smooth out and uh, they'll just remember this, this nice thing and, and they'll forget about all the, the stuff that happened. Um, rarely have I kind of ever seen this be the case in my experience. It's never, the relationship's skewed from that point. So from the point that the wrong is committed, there's, there's always something there dividing. Um, I think at that point, there's, there's two responses that we can have. We can either just let that brokenness be and just go about our lives, and I think most likely lose that relationship, or we can seek reconciliation. But if we genuinely seek reconciliation, we've gotta understand something, that this is sort of a, a two-way street. It's not just us on this thing. So we're heavy, we're heavy with that burden that, that there's been a wrong committed, but there's someone on the other side of that that's been the recipient of that wrong and, and they're absolutely part of this equation too, this relational equation. So it's in the end that this, this doing of goodness doesn't have any strong lasting effect if, if the other side is not responding. Um, so in that sort, of, that sort of two-way street analogy, I think one of the, the elements that I was reflecting on for this message and I would love you guys to to think about this too is is the grace of the one who is wronged. Um, It's not necessarily our efforts but it's the one who has to receive not only the wrong but the reconciliation to make it right from our side. Uh, I think these are the issues that we face in in our relationship with God and our walk with God first and foremost. So uh, I'd like to spend some time in in Luke chapter seven. If you guys have uh, scriptures with you on a device or, or hard copy I think we're gonna have some up here on the, on the screens too, so you can read that um, if you'd like to follow along. It's, it's a pretty big chunk, so it's Luke chapter seven. We're gonna go from verse 36 all the way through verse 50. Um, it's the story of the woman who's anointed Jesus' feet. Um, so let's go ahead and start reading. In verse 36, we see uh, Luke writes, uh, then one of the Pharisees invited him, it's Jesus, to eat with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him, Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. In verse 40, Jesus replies to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon says, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which one of them will love him more? Verse 43, and Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, Jesus told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. In verse 49, those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he, was Jesus, said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Now I, I absolutely love this story for ton of different reasons. Um, but it really only boils down to one thing that, that I think we've kind of touched on a little bit. And, um, that's just the, the major point I'd love to, to throw out today is uh, that God's grace is enough to cover any and all of our debts. So if we just look, look kind of at this passage where, uh, we're here in this story in, in Luke and uh, we're, we're with Jesus who's walking into a Pharisee's house. He's been invited to this Pharisee's house. who's a, a religious leader in the Jewish community. So he's kind of got some clout. He's, he's got, some, got some pull, I guess. This is most likely, you know, a volatile situation already where it is kind of in the story. Jesus has kind of been around and, and his name is known so he's probably suspect in the eyes of the Jewish leadership at this point. So it, it's fair to say that this dinner would have been on a lot of people's radar. A lot of people would have known about it. Um, but here, I guess, in the story that Luke's giving to us, this account that he's giving to us, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't focus on the crowd. He owns in on three people. And it's the Pharisee, the sinner, and Jesus. So this high invitation to a Pharisee's home, um, who actually doesn't seem to be really super adverse to what Jesus is doing. Uh, it, it's maybe more of a kind of a, Instigation or, or, or interview, I guess, trying to figure out what Jesus is up to. Um, but as Jesus sort of takes his place at this table in verse 36, it says he reclines at the table. And I'm sure a, a lot of you know this, but it's, um, so back when they're, when they're, the times where they're, they're kind of eating and sharing meals together, the table's real low to the ground. And so reclining would have meant like you're, you're facing the table and you would have either been laying on a mat on the floor we sort of on a raised couch, but your feet would be behind you. And so everybody's facing each other, and, and it's a real kind of intimate setting, I guess. Um, but then in verse 37 and 38, right after he reclines, this woman comes in, uh, who was a sinner, identified right there as a sinner, found out that Jesus was reclining at the table, and she brought this alabaster jar of perfume, comes in and stands behind him and just... Pours this stuff out and cries and, and wipes his feet with her hair. Uh, we don't really know her motivation for, for seeking Jesus out in this setting, specifically this uh, sort of stuffy Pharisee's house. And, um, but I think it's it, Luke notes one thing that's that's really cool. It's kind of it's it's hit me, and uh, I know that it's something that lands with a lot of us too. Is she was a sinner. Sin is something that marked this woman. She was known for this. Uh, she had gone through some kind of self-reflection, something, and she'd come across something that she recognized, too, that was wrong and needed to change. There was a division there. When she heard that the one that some had been calling the Messiah, which does it means anointed one, was in town at the, at the house of this local Pharisee. She took it upon herself to do what needed to be done, to be in the presence of this man, despite the setting, despite the people that were there. It's it is it is kind of cool in the in the Gospels of how he structured it. Um, the story is placed in a series of um, restorative and redemptive acts as Jesus is traveling around the different parts of Judea. And I think it's displaying for us and those around him, but us as readers, it's kind of setting it up. That we can acknowledge the divine anointing that 's on Jesus and this and in in all these restorative acts it 's a broken world in the setting of a broken world, his restoration that he brings and that comes through him in verse 34 it's it 's actually just another echo of, of something that 's in chapter five it's it 's how the world saw him uh, so it's it's not it 's focusing now through the eyes of of the Pharisees and the, and the the leaders that are trying to get after him, they said, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So he, he didn't have this stellar reputation already, um, but he's continuing to show who he is through these redemptive acts by healing, by casting out, by forgiving sins. So I guess we've, if we just go back to this scene, um, this, this sinner walks in with this alabaster jar of perfume and I, I know uh, Chris has talked about this before in, in other sermons. Uh, this this jar of perfume is is somewhat of a prized possession. It's, it's like about a year's worth of wages. Uh, people probably just buy this thing and put it up on a shelf or put it somewhere to admire. There's no, no one would ever think to, to open it up and use it because there's, there's no using a little bit of this stuff. It's, um, it's, a, it's a completely sealed vessel. It's like a, a bulb with a, a neck. And they would put a cloth and wrap it up and then seal it with wax. So it, this prevents the, the contents inside from spoiling. So once you open this thing up, it's all or nothing. Like that's, that's it. And there's no corking this thing back up. But this woman brings this thing in, probably the most expensive thing she owns. And she just opens it and pours this entire thing in the feet of Jesus. Of course, it you know, probably gets a gasp from everybody in the attendance. The, the Pharisee who had invited him uh, saw this and, and he says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman this is touching him. She's a sinner. Another thing that I always thought was really kind of cool is, is we were uh, reading this, my wife and I, we were, I was kind of preparing this, and noticed that Luke does this a couple times, and uh, he captures this, like, inner monologue of people, you know? Uh, he says, that, you know, this person says to himself, or he thought, or um, he does it a couple times throughout his gospel account, and these, these are just, these are really cool things that, that we as readers can come back to, and I think... Uh, one of the, the purposes for this is when he's capturing these monologues, they're, they're always in this crisis situation. It's, it's sort of a weightier concept is being wrestled with. Um, these characters are always in this crisis situation dealing with something difficult and they're asking questions, but the way it's worded and the way it, in, it invites us into that struggle. So ask questions. He says to himself, well, what does this mean? Who is this man? If he was truly a prophet, he would know this. So then it kind of invites us to to investigate a little more. What what does the rest of the gospel story say about Jesus and what he's done so far? But I think it also has a great effect of just this reaffirmation of Jesus as the promised Messiah and Savior sent by the Father. This echoes back to Jesus as a child. and In Luke chapter two, we have him as a baby being brought the temple and Simeon's outside and he's, the Bible just says he's a devout man simply waiting on the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel. He pronounces this prophecy over Jesus as a child uh, and says that he would know the thoughts of many hearts and that he would be the salvation of the world. So just briefly, if we, if we go back, um, in, in Luke chapter 2, he's, he's, he, they're outside this temple and uh, his father and mother, that's Mary and Joseph, were amazed at what was being said about Jesus. Then Simeon blessed him and told Mary, indeed this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So it's interesting sort of in, 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 the light, in light of that, we're, we're back in the story in, in Luke 7, he's responding directly to someone who's, um, saying something to himself, who's having an inner monologue. We have the one who knows the thoughts of many hearts responding to someone who said nothing out loud. This is, this is Christ knowing the thoughts and, and the hearts of many. Uh, in, verse, in verse 40, you know, he, he asks him, or he, he responds to him directly, Simon, so I have something to say to you. And it's the situation that's in this, this place, you can, you can just imagine the stuffiness of the crowd where Jesus is responding directly to this Pharisee who invited him uh, to this dinner and, and, and amongst all of the stuff that's happening this, this woman's pouring out this oil on his feet this perfume on his feet anointing and crying in front of everybody and weeping and, um. then because of this inner monologue Jesus responds to him with a parable a creditor had two debtors one owed 500 denarii and the other 50 since they could not pay it back he graciously forgave them both so which one of them would love him more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. And Jesus says, yeah, that's right, that's, that's perfect. Jesus uses these parables and, and all throughout the gospel accounts, they're awesome teaching tools and, and I think something we can even grab onto too. Um, it's, it's a parable, sort of a, a, a story that parallels a truth about the world. And Jesus uses that parable to draw out that truth and sort of give life to it. So some, it's something we can come to understand and come to, come to really grapple with. So Jesus highlights a couple things for us in the parable um, that there were two debtors. Both of them had an imbalance that they now faced uh, because they'd borrowed something that they were unable to pay back. Secondly, the creditor extends to both debtors without discretion, unconditional and unmerited forgiveness. I think, and lastly, kind of again to that point is, Simon in verse 42 asks, or a question is posed to Simon in verse 42, and, and that's something that I think we, we should be able to answer as well, but it's pretty clear cut with, with the whole context, the context of the story. The other two people um, that's, that are in the parable are kind of married in the story. There's the woman and Simon. They're the two debtors. And Jesus puts himself right in the center as the creditor in this parable. Both the woman and Simon have debts which Jesus is claiming have been offered forgiveness. And it's through Jesus alone that God's grace is enough to cover any and all debts. I think this is great kind of how he finishes up. He uh, Right here in the text, he, he turns to the woman, so focusing on her, but he, he's still talking to Simon. Um, it says, you, you see this woman. She entered your house, or I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. This woman came to pour out everything she had of value. That's including her life and very reputation in front of a bunch of people that already looked down upon her. She was a sinner in society. She didn't have a high standing. But she poured all this out on the feet of Jesus in the most humbling way and probably pretty, pretty shameful given the crowd that was there. She laid with a repentant heart at the feet of Jesus. Jesus. And then Jesus says the words that really confirm who he is, your sins are forgiven. Friends, if our sins are debt to God and Jesus came to forgive our debts, Jesus is God in the flesh who's come to complete the work of forgiveness and extend it to us, those who follow him. By doing this, Jesus invites us back into a righteous relationship with him. This is completely unmerited, and undeserved based on what we've done with this borrowed life. He gave it to us in the first place. See, we were created by him, free from debt. Our purpose was and is to enjoy him fully and to be the recipients of eternal life, truth, joy, and love. I think to kind of, to close it up, I'd, might not be a, a very good illustration, but I'd like to try and map it onto something. Like, um, just imagine a, a, a creditor or a bank, if you guys go and you borrow, borrow money. You know, First, you're, you're gonna get grilled. They're gonna ask you a bunch of questions. You're gonna fill out a bunch of paperwork. Um, you're gonna come to a point where there's, uh, both parties have agreed the appropriate use for this borrowed asset. So you're gonna use this money for something. Now, what if that creditor had come and, f- He's, they'd found out that you'd use this for illegitimate ends. I'm pretty sure they're going to call fraud quick. And uh, you're going to be in some trouble because you've taken possession of a borrowed asset and misused it. God's credited us our very existence, and He has called you fit and desirable, all of us, to possess this life for the legitimate purpose that He has deemed appropriate. So I guess something that we can consider and wrestle with too is, how do we respond to that division that we have with God? We're called to use it appropriately, this life. We're called to use it appropriately for God's purpose and to God's glory, but looking through scripture and, and really reflecting on my own experience, it's, it's pretty clear um, we abuse that, that gift all the time. Uh, we're we're sitting in that imbalance that keeps us from walking with God fully. Our debts separate us and they really need to be dealt with. So when we see Jesus having mercy on this repentant sinner here in Luke, forgiving sins, I think we really need to understand a fault in our thinking that we can just work this debt off or we can just leave it alone and it'll smooth out. There's still the matter of the other person, the one who's been wronged and it's dependent on the grace of the one who is wronged to help realize that reconciliation. Of course, when I, you know, I think about it in, the, in a context of a person-to-person uh, relationship, we can sometimes you know, have this feeling of it's not me, or they started it, it's, the, it's their fault, or I just acted in kind. But in, in a relationship with a, a perfectly holy perfectly loving and perfectly good God of the universe. There's no doubt who's kind of in the wrong with that one. <laughs> so um, I think just like this, this woman in the story, we can come before him with a repentant heart and pour everything out and just say I'm sorry. And that restoration is offered. Forgiveness of debt to God is not something we work off. It's a decision By God to forgive the one to forgive us. So, the decision to forgive the debtor is extended only by the one to whom the debt is owed. This offer of grace is extended through Christ and his work on the cross. Our debts, no matter how big or small, are cleared at the foot of that very cross. Back to that that kind of two way street analogy uh, from earlier. I think it's also important for us to realize that we have to receive what's being extended for it to be applied fully. It'd be like if, like your phone started to ring and, um, and you look down and you saw that creditor you borrowed money from, and you're like, no, I don't want to talk to this guy. Um, you, threw, you just ignored it and let it ring. Because, uh, you know, you didn't want to hear how much money you owe, how late you are, how irresponsible you've been with this borrowed stuff. Um, no one wants to get reminded of that constantly. But what if it's that creditor calling and saying that it's okay, I forgive your debts and you're cleared of any balance against me. Friends, we can never live with the clarity and the fullness of knowing that we're debt free unless we receive that call from Christ. The forgiveness has been extended, but it needs to be accepted to be applied. Some of us might even have these like, crazy backstories and experiences that we, we think, um, how could God ever forgive that thing that I did or, or that person that I hurt? How, can, how could he overlook that? Our debts don't define us. It's, it's God who's defined us. God's grace is enough to cover any and all of our debts. The world repeatedly tries to define us by our sins. It's a tough thing to continually face like that, that phone call that you just don't want to take. Uh, but it's God who defines us by who we have been created to be and through loving forgiveness reminds us that we are his children and that we were made in his image. I saw this video uh, recently. Uh, uh, it was an evangelist and, and apologist and he was speaking, he was actually just speaking at a, a you know, big college campus or something, but he was talking about um, the weight of, of sins and how they define us. And he, he said this really cool thing. He says, your sins do not define you and it shouldn't determine your future. The self-righteousness with which we engage in our sins prevents us from letting go of how those same sins shape us if we can take an honest look at ourselves and recognize that there is no way we can overcome these debts ourselves, it is in that place where we can come before Christ and be cleansed and covered in his righteousness. This is actually a a thought I had this morning to, uh, I was just rereading back through this. Um, I think our relationships with one another interpersonally our sort of reflection of of our relationship with God. And and that's to say, if, if there's something missing, something skewed, or some hurt exists, this reflects a breakdown in our relationship with our creator. If we understand the work of reconciliation and mercy completed on the cross, as Jesus took our debts, our sins, and exchanged, offered forgiveness and new life to us, our personal relationships cannot be fully healed until they're made right. Or, or, till, yeah, until we're made right with God. I think that uh, understanding his grace to us allows us to have grace with others. And, and really just, just closing, uh, thank you guys for sticking with me this whole time. Um, it was, it was a, couple, a couple weeks ago that I was driving in the car Uh, And have you ever guys been just driving along and and had the radio playing as background noise and just really paying attention? It was just kind of going. I was doing that the other day, and and something at a stoplight, I guess, it just as clear as day. These these lines came out, and um, and they've just kind of stuck with me until now. It says, uh, "Now I'm making my way to the foot of the cross. It's not a trophy for winners. It's a shelter for sinners, and it's right where I belong." You see, I think without the grace of the one who is wronged, there's no hope of reconciliation. We can't pay our way to the cross and win this prize of salvation. We can, however, in recognition that we are separated from him, the creator of the universe, turn to Jesus and receive the gracious gift of a clear debt and be reconciled. And it's at the foot of the cross where we belong. That's the only place that true forgiveness is is gonna be found. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To contact us or find out more information, visit rin-church.org.